From MGMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. And the need for the leadership of the organization to be able to help everyone focus on uh, a singular or maybe two or three major objectives. Uh, If you've got 15 clinicians, you might have 15 different ways of doing things. That in and of itself creates a significant problem That's Owen Dahl talking about processes in a medical practice. We'll hear more from Owen later in the show. We'll also talk to Melissa Philippi and Rick Waymeyer about communication and engagement, and Adrian Lloyd with a real-world example. That's all coming up on part two of our staff management series. But first, a word from our sponsors. Grow as a leader in your organization and help develop a stronger culture in your practice. MGMA's online seminar, Transformational Leadership from the Front Office to the C-Suite, will help you embrace change management and strategic vision planning to expand your leadership toolbox. For more information, visit mgma.com leadership. What does replacing an employee cost? A recent study showed that the cost ranges anywhere from half to two times the annual salary of the individual employee. With the voluntary turnover rate around 25%, this is costing U.S. businesses $1 trillion a year. Owen Dahl is a process improvement expert, an author, an educator, and our first guest. Owen believes that standardizing processes in a medical practice can help alleviate turnover which can lower the yearly cost of running a medical practice. Owen, thanks for joining the podcast. Hey, you're welcome, Daniel. I'm looking forward to this opportunity to chat. Owen, when you approach a medical practice as a consultant, what are some of the biggest issues you see from a staff management perspective? Well, uh, Daniel, again, thank you for this opportunity to be with you. And I think I see, well, there's a myriad of things that can happen. And the the bigger things are first of all the make the need to focus on that patient so what are we doing for that patient and so we do a quick patient satisfaction survey we identify patient wait times a problem etc so that's that's a huge issue that we continue to run into in fact it's interesting when you start to think about okay why do we have that what can we do about it things like these walk-in clinics and these drug stores and grocery stores uh, urgent care centers uh, there's a lot of opportunities that patients are now seeking outside of our world because they have these opportunities to to get care in other ways. Uh, so that would be one. I think another big thing with the millennial population and so on is staff turnover. And I think that when we when we look at that, uh, <clears throat> I use the number that it costs you about seventy percent of an employee's annual salary in terms of replacing that employee. Now that's not writing out a check for that number, but that's loss of resources, loss of time, interviewing processes and all of that sort of stuff. So I think that there's, there's a, a gap that's there. I still think and find uh, things in the revenue cycle arena with appeals and denials, uh, lack of uh, effort on the part of the front desk to collect at the time of visit. Uh, so, you know, there I just said, patient care, administrative processing, and then, you know, revenue cycle, big, big areas that continue to be problems. Right. Now, walk us through some scenarios here. Uh, could you share an example where staff management, for whatever reason, is, has just kind of gone off the rails a little bit? Their, their processes seem broken. They're, they're not quite understanding why they're their patient times are lagging. What does that look like in, in practice? Uh, I, I think it goes back to one of, the, one of my favorite concepts, and that is the culture of the organization and the need for the leadership of the organization to be able to help everyone focus on uh, a singular or maybe two or three major objectives. And when I say that, if it's a, if it's a multiple physician practice, and uh, you've got uh, three, say you've got 10 doctors in the group, 
uh, and five mid-levels, five. So you've got a total of 15 clinicians that are providing care. Uh, if you've got 15 clinicians, you might have 15 different ways of doing things. And that in and of itself creates a significant problem because uh, a medical assistant or a receptionist who's attempting to schedule staff, schedule patients, those kinds of things all get different messaging. And if they get different messaging, then how, how are you going to know what to do? And then people end up typically not doing much of anything because they're afraid they're going to get slapped for doing the wrong thing. So I don't want to say that it's physician driven uh, in terms of the biggest problem, but by the same token, if we had leadership that helped us look at that kind of thing, uh, I think we could I think we could focus our efforts. And if we have a good culture that says we want to focus our efforts and Another phrase I like to use is instead of employees, we have knowledge workers. And knowledge workers come from W. Edwards Deming, from, you know, excuse me, from uh, uh, Peter Drucker. And, and Drucker says that, you know, engaging employees' brains, taking advantage of that knowledge, makes a big difference in terms of what resources can be applied to fixing systems. So if you have a leadership that says, we want to focus on these two or three things, we're willing to consolidate, we're willing to standardize, and then we want everyone that's involved in our organization to use their brains to help us come up with better ways to provide patient care, guess what? The outcomes have been phenomenal when, when you actually apply those types of principles and approaches. Now... We were talking in an earlier conversation about kind of the intersection of technological advancements, how that can help processes, but also the need for the personal touch as well. Tell us a little bit more about that, how, both of those, how we can benefit from both of those, both from the technology side of it, but also that face-to-face -face contact. Well, that, that technology thing is, is, um, um, is clustered. Uh, it's, it's kind of a mess in, in that we have so many different sources and so many different things that are coming, whether we buy interfaces, whether we do this, whether we have a single consolidated platform. But then we've got uh, for our EMR and our practice management system, maybe we have a single platform, but our accounting system is not the same or our HR system is not the same. So we've got lots of issues that get into the technology world. But if we then turn around and say, what can we do to make those better? And if we go for not only saying, what can we do to make those better? How can we consolidate our resources into one database so that we can get some decent measurements out of the thing? Hmm, maybe there's application for artificial intelligence. Maybe there's some decision support systems that will, will help us in terms of how we move forward. Uh, <clears throat> integrating your imaging software into your EMR so that you've got an instant a picture that's available. Like a lot of that stuff is somewhat practical and a lot of people have those things. Uh, but by the same token, do they work as well as they should? No. So we could do things. So I think focusing on, on that and okay, how do we focus on that? Uh, physicians and clinicians when they're, when they're with patients are too busy typing. We're looking at the top of their heads. They're not getting eye contact. Uh, staff is so busy doing that same kind of thing that they're not getting eye contact. And so I like to think about what Gallup has done relative to the idea of employee or patient engagement. And what Gallup says is there's 55% uh, of the communication that you and I have is by body language. Well, this is a recording, so you don't know what I'm doing in terms of body language. But if I'm using my hands to emphasize something and, and not standing with my arms crossed, that's telling you that my body language is engaged. If I'm looking at you face to face, so I'm looking in your eyes, I'm engaged. And then if my tone of voice, which is 38%, suggests what? That I'm screaming at you uh, or that I'm turning my head and you can't hear me, those kinds of things, that, <clears throat> that actually totals to 93% of that transaction, of that encounter, as being something other than the words. And we concentrate on scripts, we concentrate on a lot of words that we want to make sure get communicated to our patient. But by the same token, if 
we're giving them bad body language, if we're giving them a tone of voice that is condescending or is not representative of an interactive activity, we failed. So, so the key on, I think, the future is what can we do technologically to improve those processes, but not forgetting about the engagement that goes on. If we can marry those two together, what we can create is an incredible patient experience. And that's what this is all about. Right. Now, I want to return to something you talked about earlier. You were talking about staffing turnover, the high rate of staffing turnover. We also see from different reports that, in general, there are staffing shortages in healthcare across the board. So that exacerbates the issue. Uh, when you're helping people with their processes and they're already challenged with uh, staffing shortages, how do you go about that? Do you bake in the, the staffing turnover to, to take care of those issues? Where, how do you fix those gaps? Ooh, that's, that's a tough one. I wish that we had so many staff that we could shift, shift people around and everything would work. Uh, so if we back up for a second and talk, you know, focus again on what I said earlier about standardization and so on, it might be easier to shift staff around a little bit in those gaps when we have a vacancy. <clears throat> but one of the things that I, I want to caution people about all the time is, is not to do crisis hires. And a crisis hire is the person has resigned today. We need that position filled Monday morning. So we take the first warm body that walks through the door. Uh, and, and then what we do is we say to them, like as an example, this would be the receptionist. So, the, we say to them, here's the phone, here's the name of the practice, these are the doctors, here's the forms we want you to have filled out, every patient must register, have a good day. Uh, okay, what kind of training have we done? We've done nothing to build any kind of loyalty, we've done nothing to build any kind of efficiency into that process. So it's one thing to hire right, and then it's another thing to retain right. And so if we can retain right through onboarding and through meeting some of the demands that some of our newer, younger uh, employees, knowledge workers have, uh, where they want to gain knowledge, they want to see opportunities to provide care and to, to do a service to, to our customer, our patient. Uh, so <clears throat> I think if we, if we look at those kinds of things, uh, and so eliminate crisis hires, uh, do some cross-training of your staff to help deal with things, hire the right people. And when I say hire the right people, one of my other criteria is uh, I, I don't necessarily hire, if, if somebody presents and doesn't always have all the skills necessary for the position, but they really have a great personality that I know will fit in with the rest of the team, I'm going to hire the personality and train the skills rather than have the skills and have a personality that disrupts my team. And so those are many, many different factors that go into the idea. And if we can reduce turnover, uh, and, and okay, so a lot of people also argue that millennials today uh, are, you know, they, they're continually looking for the other job, the other job, the other job, the other job. Well, if you've invested money in a millennial, you think they're good potential or good employees, and then they leave, <clears throat> why not have an alumni association? Why not keep in contact with those people? Because the grass may not always be greener on the other side. They may be willing to come back to actually work again in the practice. And if they're willing to do that, you've just reduced your cost of turnover. And you've then gained, I would expect, be a much more loyal employee for you in the long run. Right. So, I mean, Daniel, I just said, what, 10 different ideas here, uh, any one of which could work, but unless you have a, a system in place that says, this is how we want to manage and work with our knowledge workers, how are we going to do this? Then if you don't have that, yeah, okay, it was a good idea, fun, we, you know, we had a nice chat. Uh, if we do that, we could reduce that cost of turnover and have a much more efficient system. Sure. Now, one of the tools or processes you talk a lot about and write about is lean. Uh, could you define that for our audience? And then 
Talk about how it can be integrated or implemented in a medical practice. Uh, lean is, is really something more about reducing waste. When we talk about Lean Six Sigma and we talk about a lot of things like that, what we're doing is trying to eliminate waste. And uh, when, when we say waste, we're talking about are you uh, overworking? Are you moving pieces of paper from one side of the desk to the other? Are you uh, not efficiently moving a patient from uh, the reception area to the triage area to the exam room? Uh, there's just a number of things that can happen that are wasteful. Uh, you ordered the wrong lab test. You didn't get the results back from the uh, consulting service that you were looking for. Uh, and, and so you've got to scramble around trying to find things like that. Those would be gaps in what, what we refer to as an assembly line. And so what is lean and Six Sigma? Well, there's, those are principles or concepts that were developed in the manufacturing world. And when I talk about this, a lot of doctors say, well, that doesn't make any sense. You can't apply a manufacturing principle to how I take care of patients. Well, yes, we can because there is an assembly line. And so as we think through how that assembly line works, we then can say, what can we do to make that process more efficient? Where are our roadblocks? Where are our gaps? Where are our barriers that cause that flow of patients to be disrupted? delayed uh, or, or something along that line to the point that we're not as efficient as we could be. And so subject to that, that I think lean from, again, the manufacturing world teaches us with a lot of tools from process maps to Ishikawa diagrams to FMEAs to and different things like that, uh, the A3 model, the deployment platform model, all of those things are things that, that we can use effectively to, to improve what we're talking about in terms of how we handle patient care. Right. Now, Lean and, and Six Sigma and these other processes that you present to people, they sound great in theory, but there's got to be some barriers and challenges to adopting them. And it goes back to something that you talked about earlier. Hey, this is the way we always did it. So even if the process is broken, sometimes having it broken is to people or a culture is better than change. Change can be scary. So how do you overcome those challenges of integrating something new into a system, whether it works or doesn't? Uh, <clears throat> change is, as you said, is a scary word. I don't like to use that word. I like to use the word transition. And so we're transitioning from the way we've always done it to a new way. So there we go using a word. Now, if we're, if we're wordsmithing, nah, but if I sell it correctly with my tone of voice and my body language and so on, I think that makes sense. But in, in, in looking at the best way that I find to transition from one thing to another is to recognize that your knowledge workers have the brains. And if you think about a, a cycle of change, if you get people involved, you'll have more ideas, you'll do more brainstorming and that sort of thing. And that can be a long-term process. But then when you implement the change, it can be very short. As opposed to dictating the change or the transition from above and telling somebody this is how they have to do it, they're going to they're have instant resistance to that new way of doing things. And so it's going to take longer to actually make the change. So in terms of how I, I like to do things, I think it's very important that you get what the lean terminology is you get process owners, those people that are actually doing the work, you get them involved with helping you develop the change or the transition model that you want to do. You explain to them, this is our purpose behind what we're about to do. This is what we've identified as the problem. I don't have a solution to this. Can you help me come up with a solution? Get them involved and all of a sudden that implementation piece is much more effective in, in the long run. And remember that what we're dealing with here are a bunch of adults. We're not dealing with the five-year-old who's just learning not to put their hand on the, on the stove. And if, because if they put their hand on the stove, it gets burned. They'll never do that again. Well, that's a simple process. But adults have 18, 20, 30 years of experience behind them. You can't expect them to change the way they've done things or their perspective with that kind of history. 
So you've got to develop a way to address and deal with adults and how you can help them learn a new way to do things. And the best way to do that, I find, is to get them involved and how they can move forward with that. Sure. Well, Owen, thanks so much for these great insights today. But Daniel, I, uh, I hope it helps. Uh, again, the purpose behind all of this, I hope, is uh, from my perspective, is what can we do to improve patient care? And that can be removing denials or eliminating denials. That could be hiring the right people. And that can also be managing that patient cycle time. All of those things together are really important for us in terms of improving patient care. So thanks for this opportunity. And I hope that uh, this reaches people and motivates them to seek better ways to transition how they do patient care. How do you apply processes to a medical practice? Joining us to discuss a real-world application are MGMA Senior Editor Craig Weberg and industry expert Adrian Lloyd. Adrian is the Chief Administrative Officer for the Duke Eye Center at Duke Medical Center. Adrian, welcome to the podcast, and can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me today, Craig. I really appreciate it. So um, I have been in the healthcare industry for a little over 18 years on the healthcare administration side. I am um, from North Carolina, so I started at UNC Pediatrics and then spent um, most of my formative years at 10 years at Mayo Clinic um, in multiple specialties. And then the last six years, I've been fortunate to be at Duke kind of leading all of our ophthalmology practices there. And um, I'm very passionate about process improvement, as, as you said, and as we'll talk about later, but I've been fortunate the last couple of years to be able to kind of share that message with um, national audiences and really help um, hopefully train others on how they can implement process improvement techniques. But what I really love most about it is it really does create an opportunity to create, get team engagement um, and create kind of that change culture um, all, all together. And that's been really, really helpful um, with all the practices I've worked with and I think can be helpful for many, many others. So Adrian, uh, you have spoken a lot uh, on, uh, for different conferences and you most recently for us spoke at the operations conference and led a three-hour pre-conference session that talked about process improvement, the topic of the day. And in that you shared um, and highlighted uh, your efforts with space, staff, and supply utilization uh, in an ambulatory surgery center. And you based these on lean concepts. You shared these insights, uh, standardizing opera room, operating room prep and supply management. Today, I'd really like to jump in and talk about uh, something that was in, of interest to me when I was uh, looking at your presentation and it's standardizing staffing efforts. Can you talk a little bit about this concept and the program you implemented there at Duke? Absolutely. So we, when I first started in 2013, we had 10 locations and they really unfortunately were functioning very differently. And so our providers and patients and staff were having um, different experiences and honestly, they weren't always the best ones. Um, and so we really went in and started with cross training um, of staff, increasing the training level of our technicians. But what evolved um, shortly thereafter was the creation of a, a point system, which is really looking at trying to create a, a workload balancing tool um, so that we could assess both you know, high performers, low performers, but also help predict staffing. Um, as we started cross training, we were able to move people to other sites and it really helped us um, predict where we might need additional staff or maybe less staff if there weren't as many providers in one clinic versus another one day. Um, and also, of course, from retrospective perspective, um, look at managing individual performance. And it, it really has been a game changer for what we've done. And as we, we worked with a couple small clinics and then kind of have rolled, now rolled that out across all of our other clinics. And it's really served as a platform for a lot of the other process improvement and kind of work standardization efforts that we've had. Yeah, so this was really, really interesting to me of, of how you went about creating this point scale or effort scale for your employees. I mean, what kind of resources did you use for that? And what does it kind of look like? Provide some more detail for me, if you would. Absolutely. Um, so what we, we did is we really sat down and did a what's called a process map. And we mapped our patient flow um, through some for some of our highest volume patient categories we mapped our patient flow through the process. And really for, for ophthalmology, and it really is relevant for a lot of other specialties as well, but you know, you kind of have the tech, um, the check-in time to the technician 
um, touch time or perhaps it's a nurse touch time, but, um, and then they have the technicians and ophthalmology do a lot of the workup and imaging component for the, for the patients. And so we went through, and then there, of course, after the technicians work them up, they're going to see the physician. What we did is we looked at each appointment type because there's different amount, different types and, um, time components that happen for each different work type, like a new cataract evaluation versus obviously a return or post-op are going to have less work up front. Um, and so we were able to quantify looking at essentially what's called the TAC time um, in, in Lean and Six Sigma, but we uh, measured the TAC time for each of these appointment types until we could get kind of a median best practice value. And from there, we used a 15-minute interval and we created a points per appointment type. Um, and then we were able to look at how much we expected of a technician, you know, during kind of a four hour half day block. Um, and we create set our points around our target around 12 um, and then per half day. And then we work through, we actually get the appointment types and the technicians names out of Epic, um, which is our EHR. And we're able to identify which patient, which technicians work with which patients. And so we're able to pull that into a, um, into an Excel file, we actually now got fancy and push it into Tableau. But you, when we first started, we actually did it on paper with um, tick sheets. So um, we've kind of evolved over the last few years, but um, we pull it out of Epic, get the appointment types by the technicians. We're able to see how many um, kind of points each technician got, because a lot of people look at a patient, patient numbers um, and a technician might say, you know, I've worked up 20 patients, but it might be 20 post-ops versus you know, 10 cataract evaluations, that's a lot more work and a lot more time. So it really helped us even the playing field a little bit. And it wasn't trying to be punitive in any way, of course, but it was really trying to create a balance um, because we did have, as, as most any practice does or any organization does, we had, you know, low performers who were kind of happy um, hanging back and letting someone else take that patient before they had to, had to get them. And this helped give the managers some objective data um, that they could then work with the staff. And then, of course, as I mentioned, also be able to, to prospectively look at how many people we might need um, and where. So when you were, you, you've mapped this out, you, you mapped it to a median effort, point scale yeah. effort per uh, appointment type or per surgery type. Correct. And then you go ahead and use that information to help manage performance on that level. So if somebody's not meeting their point standards or based on half days, they're not reading their meeting their 12 point okay. standard, then you use that to influence um, performance and coach. Yep, exactly. And, and we actually had something similar when I worked with gastroenterology and our endoscopy ASC as well. We had a different point scale with similar, um, types of calculation for our, our EGDs and our colonoscopies, because of course um, we actually, so what we also measured for both, both instances ophthalmology and when I worked with GI is we've also measured not only the technician time, but the physician time. And we found that for the most part, the physicians in both the endoscopy suite and in ophthalmology um, for endoscopy, we had a variation of around maybe seven minutes longer for a colonoscopy versus an EGD. And in ophthalmology, for the most part, our new patients, our physician might spend a few more minutes with them, but for, because we're doing a lot of the work and the testing and the imaging up front, they're able to quickly look at kind of the diagnosis and what, what the patient needs and really have that conversation with them. So there wasn't a lot of variation on the physician side in either scenario, but it really shifted the work upstream to that, that staff, the nurse or the technician. Um, and so we were able to so we, we get the points and now we are able to, we publish them daily. Each of the managers will actually put the list on their door. Um, and so they have their names and everything. And um, it really does, every, the, the situation is everybody knows who the low performers are anyway. <laughs> there just wasn't previously a way to, um, for the managers to always understand that and for them to have a objective measure to be able to start to, as you said, coach them, hopefully coach them up or perhaps manage them out if, if there's not, um, a possibility of success. And we, we invest a lot and really talk to our employees. We want them to be upfront with us about types of training or additional skills they may need. And so we really appreciate that. And um, so those are part of those conversations the manager will have with the staff when maybe they're not consistently meeting their points. And um, of course, it's, a, you know, again, about the law of averages. So we're not, if somebody's below their points one day, it's really, you know, not going to be a big, a big deal. But it, if it's a consistent pattern, 
that's where the manager would get in there and assess. And of course, there are other, are other responsibilities that could come up um, during that day. So a, a technician or maybe a nurse might be called to do um, phone triage, for example. And so the manager will, you know, write that information on the um, on the graph that we have. We have it in Tableau, and so. Um, they'll write that beside the technician name. They'll say worked as, worked as maybe a patient scribe or worked in um, phone triage. And so that, that helps the staff know like, okay, well, there's a reason they got lower points. Um, but we've had a lot of communication, as you might imagine, around this, and it wasn't always perfectly received on the front end, but um, it really has, has made a big difference. So the managers look at it um, daily. They also look at it monthly to see, again, to address those patterns. Um, and then what's been helpful on my side is really we're able to roll this up by clinic and also by manager group. So when the managers come and ask for additional staff, we're really able to look at that and have an objective way to say, yes, it looks like you, you know, you guys have been increasing your points. It looks like you're at the kind of the maximum threshold where we want you to be to still make sure we're providing the best care and service. So yes, it makes sense to add additional staff and that helps us justify that with the provider group as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You're creating some uh, quantifiable data to help you make evidence-based decisions, which I think is a great way to go about it. You know, you can't get a feel. Uh, I think it's much better and easier to communicate out to staff and to, to sure. providers if you've got quantifiable data backing it up. And I love how you're showing it on a daily basis. So people are fully aware of what expectations are and where area for opportunity is, right? Sure. Yeah. One of my favorite, um, I'm not sure where I heard it, but one of my favorite statements is, you know, people don't mind high expectations. They just want to know what they are and want them consistently and fairly enforced. And that really is what this helps drive because, you know, and I, as I've worked with a lot of employee satisfaction surveys over the years too, that the common themes that you see if, if employees are not satisfied and even if physicians aren't satisfied is, they feel like they don't have input into their work, which process improvement and engagement around brainstorming techniques or other things can really help you um, get that input and get that engagement. Or the second factor is that they don't feel like people are held accountable um, and consistently held accountable or fair, they're being treated fairly. And so this, the point system has really helped us with the, um, with the second factor and really making sure that we're transparent with what we're doing and that we're holding people accountable. So we've, in addition to the point system, we've also built um, kind of a list of non-negotiables and we had the team actually help come up with that. Um, and then we have, of course, as part of this, um, really tried to standardize the workups for the patients um, and gotten our physician input and everything in, into that as well. So that's really been a big benefit. Um, but a lot of it has stemmed from what we've done with creating the the workload management tool. You, we started to touch on this a little bit, but you mentioned in a previous conversation I had with you that it was your high performers that had the most reservations about this. And how did they respond to when you implemented this? Sure. Um, it, it was funny because we were actually implementing it, you know, in some ways to kind of mo measure and monitor the low performers. But yes, the high performers, even though they were frustrated with their colleagues who were not pulling their fair share of the weight. Um, they just really, you know, and again, I think it maybe just is attributable to most of your high performers tend to be your more conscientious staff that are going to make sure that they're, um, you know, at the top of the top of the list and they're always working extra hard. So um, they were worried, but we, we talked through with them and said, you know, if, again, it's not, you know, if you have a bad day or something happens, you have a complicated patient, you know, it's not that any you're probably not even going to have a conversation with the manager because the manager is going to know what happened um, and, and understand there was a reason why that didn't work. Um, but they also would be able to, um, you know, address patterns. And so our high performers actually were very happy um, probably, you know, within a few weeks to a month after go live because they they were able to see, um, Oh, wow. I actually am. I actually am doing, you know, more, but they also started to see some of the low performers and middle performers start to increase their workload. And we heard from several staff that they were very excited on the high performer side because they went home at the end of the day and they weren't exhausted um, because they weren't having to do every, you know, all of the work themselves and carry kind of the burden of the clinic um, on their shoulders. And they often felt like they couldn't take vacation because if they did, the, the whole place would fall apart. And, um, you know, as we, as we've, 
moved along and actually now that we share staff across sites, we're able to really balance time off and not have as big of an impact if someone leaves. I think that's been a really big benefit too. But um, so they were very happy. Um, they also saw the patients not waiting as long um, because as we, as we changed this, we also worked through and changed our templates and other factors to really decrease the patient waiting time. And um, so they were seeing a lot of other benefits and they also felt it themselves. And, uh, you know, after a few months, they also saw us address um, individuals who weren't able to um, improve even with additional training and support. Um, and one thing I'll just add, we did also, um, we obviously we don't want people to get, you know, a tremendous number of points at the expense of missing steps. So our managers couple, if someone has a high number, really high number of points, they will also do um, chart audits and make sure that they captured all of the key elements that they needed to during the workup process. So I think that's really important as well. So anytime you create a point system, make, making sure you've got kind of a, a quality measure um, to counter that, to make, you know, so that it doesn't get out of hand, I think is really important. So that's been um, a benefit too. And um, that helped with our communication to the staff is, you know, because some of the first comments were, you know, you're only focused on numbers, you just want us to, you're not worried about, you know, you're not focused on the patient connection. And that wasn't true at all. We really wanted to improve the patient experience, but we also wanted to have them move through the process as quickly as possible so that they can, you know, get what they need, be taken care of, have great service, great quality, but also, you know, leave the clinic and move on with their lives and be with their families or at work or whatever they needed to do. And um, I think it, it took some time, but they really, um, really have grown to understand that. And it's been a, a key point for us as we've um, created change in many other areas of the practices. I think that's a great point. Whenever you're quantifying and, and measuring um, anything, yeah. it's, it's an assumption that more is better. And what you're right. telling me is that's not the case. You're, you're giving them a kind of a target of where, you know, reasonable right. expectations of work effort are. And right. I think that's a great, great point. I'm glad you brought right. that up. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Adrian, and sharing your insights. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Craig. According to Gallup Research, more than 50% of voluntarily exiting employees say their manager or organization could have done something to prevent them from leaving their job. Our next guest believes that medical practices can change this trend by updating the performance evaluation model to a performance management one. To help explain this, we are joined once again by senior editor Craig Weberg, who's talking to Rick Waymeyer, Chief Administrative Officer at the Carroll Clinic. Today we're going to be talking about staff performance management in medical practices. Uh, Rick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Rick, uh, you recently published an article with MGMA on per the performance management process. In that article, you shared some thoughts on how you take a little bit different approach on managing performance with your direct reports. Could you share with the listeners a little bit uh, about that program, what it looks like? Yes, sure. Over the years, um, you know, I've had everything from very sophisticated human resources uh, processes where, you know, there are very specific things that people get graded on. You get certain scores, they add them up, they average them, they compare them to other people. And then boom, at the end of it, you get a, a grade and then that grade translates into some type of a uh, wage increase and uh, I've never known anybody to go through one of those types of things and then get a 2.8% uh, wage increase and then feel good about themselves. So uh, I always thought that the performance evaluations done on an annual basis did not actually energize the, um, uh, the employee or any of your staff simply because it looks like it's a chore to the managing person and it looks like almost a threat sometimes to the employee being interviewed and typically nobody likes it and they're not done on time they're not done very effectively and it doesn't feel good from the employee side to save up everything for a one-time meeting so what i thought that there has to be a better, uh, a better way to do this and you know, I've, I've read several articles and other people follow this too. And I actually feel the best thing to do is provide continuous feedback to your employees throughout the year 
and that their pay should be based on a competitive wage in the market that you're in. So that is why I implemented something here where we meet with all of our employees on a regular basis. Yeah, what you're describing to me and, and what we're talking about in our um, episode or in our uh, podcast episode is kind of the difference between performance evaluation and performance management. What I'm hearing from you is that a regular touch base is much more um, effective in managing performances, which we're really trying to get to. I mean, the evaluation piece in what you're telling me is really, that's not really fair either when you're doing it once a year. Correct. And the way we do it at the Carroll Clinic, it, it's pretty simple for all of the, my direct reports, which are all the managers, it's a very, very simple process. One, I make it mandatory that you save a spot on your calendar once a month for one hour for each of my direct reports. So they get that one-on-one -on -one time with me and it is their time. And then from their point, from their part, they simply uh, have a one-page uh, form where it's broken into three parts. The first part is, what have I accomplished during the month? The middle part is, uh, what am I currently working on? And then the third part of it is, what do I want to be working on going forward? What do I need to be working on? And what resources do I need to accomplish what I want to do going forward? And, and what this does is it creates a situation where both the manager and their direct report have the opportunity to discuss what is going on with that individual, where can I provide additional services, and where can I potentially redirect that uh, employee to maybe prioritize a little better and, and offer them praise for certain things that they've gotten done. So as you accomplish things through the year, you end up uh, knowing where you stand at all times, and it just makes the individual feel better about the job they're doing. Now, for all of our hourly employees, because some supervisors have 10 or 12 direct reports, we follow the same process, but what they do is they meet with them for half an hour at a minimum of a quarterly basis so that the other staff have the opportunity to to get feedback on a regular basis. And, and you're perfectly right about the performance management because it really keeps us on track and keeps everybody engaged on a regular basis. And I think it spills over into a much uh, happier and more productive workplace. Uh, I don't know if you can call this a direct correlation, but this last April, we went through the certification process and became certified as a better place to work. And I think this communication and this feedback that we give our employees, I think, contributes to a much more positive workplace. So what was kind of your inspiration of starting this process? Um, how did you come up with it? And, and again, what inspired you to move away from a annual performance management discussion to this more regular monthly uh, process? Well, part of it is, you know, my own experience with being evaluated and also, um, frankly, I didn't really relish doing annual performance evaluations because, yes, you can talk to your employees throughout the year and, yes, you can keep them informed, but if you have annual performance evaluations, kind of what you do during the year does not really count. You know what I mean? It, it does count in a way, but if somebody does something exceptional six months before their performance evaluation, you know, you should have the opportunity to, you know, recognize that, that individual. And then, you know, I also think it, it helps employee retention because, you know, if you ask people, you know, one of the top three things that they want to know is they want to know how they're doing and they want to know what they can do to do a better job. So, you know, again, going back to your question about what inspired me is one, I personally did not like 
the process and I didn't like to only keep score once per year. I like the idea of just continuous feedback. And, you know, the other thing too, is you, you really get to know your employees and, you know, it, it gives you an opportunity to walk down the hall and say, how's your daughter doing in school? Or um, I heard your son graduated from college and, you know, by meeting with all of your staff on a regular basis, you learn something personal about each one of them. And when you engage them, it puts a smile on their face. And, and again, I think that contributes to a much more positive work, workplace environment. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I was going to go back. You said that part of your process, your monthly process, is you have a one-page kind of uh, status sheet and right. there were three elements in that. Could you uh, go over that again and, and talk a little bit about what those three elements are? Sure. The The first element is what have I accomplished? So everybody has certain things they need to do, you know, and, and maybe it's a project, maybe it's a budget, maybe it's a, a purchase, maybe it's hiring somebody. It gives them a chance to document in a very bullet form, concise manner, what they have done in the last 30 days. And again, it, going back to an annual performance evaluation, you need, to con you need to take into what that person did for the entire year. And if you, if you review somebody in November and tell them they did a great job in March on a certain project, it just kind of loses its luster. So again, it, it, it's, the, it's the feedback. Um, the middle part is what am I working on now? So that gives me the opportunity to see where they are, whether I need to help them reprioritize their, their efforts in certain areas. Um, it also gives them an opportunity to say, you know what, I don't think this is working and, and, and I really need to stop putting my resources on this. And you know, there's numerous management articles about when people get projects and, you know, it's not going anywhere and it just keeps going on and on and on. And, and if you don't have the opportunity to intercede on a regular basis, you, you could have a lot of resources and, and everybody knows the old story about going to Abilene. So I think this kind of keeps us from going to Abilene. And then the third part is what am I going to be working on in the future? And that gives me an opportunity to see what they're thinking, where they want to go, um, what resources do I have within the organization that could support their efforts, you know, whether it's staff time uh, or um, funds to make it happen. So it's, it's a real nice, concise uh, progress report. And by keeping it to one page and bullet point format, it doesn't get into all kinds of emotion or all kinds of explanation. It's just very, you know, straightforward and concise and helps people focus really well. And then do you keep those um, monthly reports kind of in their file? And do you use those at the end of the year to make those decisions of the market adjustments for pay? Is that how that works? Or Yeah, what, what I do, and I've asked everybody else to do it too, is they send it to me in electronic format and I just have an electronic file for each of our um, employees. So, uh, you know, everybody can do it. it. It's for me, it's not in their personnel file. It's in each individual manager keeps say, an electronic file of those. And, and when you talk about where does it take the market adjustments, what we do is we use, you know, we use MGMA, we use, an informal survey that I do in the DFW area for all of the different job positions that we have. And our target is that if you have at least two to three years experience in the position that you're at, we want to make sure you're at the median to the 75th percentile of compensation, uh, assuming that you know your performance is good based on these monthly meetings. And we feel that if we keep all of our employees at the median or higher, then we have nothing to be ashamed of and we're paying our employees a competitive wage. And we tell them that we do these surveys and we tell them that your pay is at the median or higher. And I think that gives them a, a little bit of a comfort level. 
Now, depending on how these uh, monthly discussions go, somebody could get a little bit better than a market adjustment. Somebody may not get as much, but typically we have not had to not give anybody their adjustment because if you have this continuous feedback, people don't go astray. You know, if they start going astray, we very simply say to them that, you know, this might not be the best organization for you and you should probably look for something else. And for those that are doing a good job, we tell them we're really happy to have you in this organization. So we have had, we have not had a lot of situations where people have been surprised or people have been fired for bad performance simply because everybody knows what they're doing all the time. Um, we're talking about performance management and ultimately what we're trying to do and the ultimate goal of performance management is practice improvement. So have you seen any direct correlation between or any correlation between, you know, this program and your, your management techniques of your staff and any of your practice metrics, patient satisfaction, financials, any of those things? Um, I think so. Um, you know, I started five years ago and, and when I came in, we were in a little bit of a, uh, a more difficult situation at that time. There were some illnesses in the senior management. So there was a six to eight month period where it, it kind of was a little bit rudderless. And I think what we did is put a little bit more uh, discipline into how we approach things. And for the last five years, every year, we've seen our, our revenues increase and our expenses decrease. And the um, and, and even if you go back to a, 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 a per physician basis, we've seen our metrics grow. Um, I don't know what the situation is now, but two years ago, we got recognized as a better performer by MGMA under the operations section. So I think that's probably a, a, a direct correlation to that. Um, we continuously maintain our employee turnover in that 10 to 12% range, which I believe is, is pretty good for a um, orthopedic practice. And there's a lot of people out there that wanna work for us. So whenever we have position openings, um, our employees find their friends and family and colleagues to come to work for us. So I think it has had a, a good impact on us. I do know that we send out um, emailed surveys to all of our patients after their visit, and we get about a 15 to 18% response rate. But when you look at the care you receive here, the perception of our staff, the perception of our doctors, and do you get the answers from our staff when you have questions, we, all of those categories are 95% or higher. And our total net promoter score averages between 90 and 92%. So yes, I do believe that there is, a, there is some valuable benefit to how we interact with our employees. Well, congratulations, Rick. Those are some great numbers. And I think from the sound of it, this program has helped with that tremendously. So before we close today, I was going to ask you if you had any final words of advice for listeners when they're thinking about implementing programs like this. I think that one of the most important things anybody can do is create an environment where the employees feel that you are investing in them and, and you care about how well they they do on your job. And, you know, I'll just give you, a, a, you know, some very couple answers quick answer. So we have a very active suggestion committee with no managers on it. So we have representatives from each department there. And we do have our HR person that kind of facilitates it. But, you know, this year, I just walked in and said, guys, you keep asking me if you can do something. You know what? I'm going to give you guys 500 bucks a month to do whatever you feel like doing with it. So we have chili cook-offs and jelly bean countings and pumpkin carving contests and, you know, just giving $500 and some empowerment to a group of staff to do whatever they want just creates a very, you know, positive environment. You know, another thing that we, we did was, you know, 
young um, young workers often have tie situations where you know childcare becomes problematic and the cost of it becomes problematic. So you know we went through the whole process of what could we do and we couldn't do what we wanted to do simply because there's a lot of liability issues with setting up your own daycare and everything like that. But um, the IRS allows you to do $2,500 tax-free to a child care. I don't know if it's an HSA or an FSA. So what we did is we just basically said, if you have kids under the age of 12, you can, um, we'll fund your HSA at $100 per kid up to $2,500. Now that's not a lot of money, but it's like one-tenth of 1% of our total collections in terms of what it cost us. And the the um, the feedback is like way more than the cost. And again, I, I think I think you know we're a pretty good sized organization. I think a lot of times people get caught up too much in how much something costs. And if you have to pay fifty thousand dollars to get a ninety five percent rating from your patients you could consider that an investment well worth rather than an expense. And then finally, uh, I'll just close by saying, we really need to look at our employees as assets of the organization, rather expenses of the organization. And, and I think that mindset is very powerful. And if you can communicate that to your, to your staff, then I think you have a really good chance of having a stellar organization. Well, thank you so much, Rick, for sharing your insights today. Uh, I it sounds like you're doing some great things there, and it really uh, the programs that you've put in place are really employee centric, and it, it's great to listen to you uh, talk about how that has improved the performance in the um, you know your, your overall environment there in your practice. So, congratulations on the hundred year uh, mark with your independent practice. That's fantastic, and um, thanks again for sharing your insights today. I appreciate it. And, and you guys all have good days too. As Rick mentioned, frequent communication is vital to employee engagement. But what does that communication look like? To help us answer that question, I'm joined by Melissa Philippi, president and co-founder of Performance Culture. Melissa, thanks for joining our podcast today. Now, in your article, you list different types of communication. Some of these I'd heard of before, some I hadn't. Uh, One-to-ones I knew about, we have those here at MGMA. And other things, pulse checks, stand-ups, check-ins. Uh, are these just fancy terms? Are these all actually different types of communication? Some are different. Pretty much what I'm referring to is the fact that everybody calls it something different. So. This is where uh, in the article I talk about check-ins being the less structured cousin of a performance review, right? So as such, we do have this kind of Wild West approach. Everybody's kind of doing their thing in uh, and, and the, the type of work we're doing and people are catching up to the fact that I've got to talk with my employee on a more regular basis to maintain that alignment. Um, people are just trying to figure it out and they're putting labels to it, right? And, and different companies are labeling things and then there's performance um, you know, the human resources industry are, are putting names to it. Um, Stand-ups are what it sounds like. There's a, a lot of companies that will come around before shifts and they'll do it usually in group settings. So, hey, everybody, Ritz-Carlton is famous for this. They call it, they say, shine a light on your mistakes. They'll actually get together. I don't know if they still do this, but this is what I remember hearing about. Um, this is what happened before on these shifts. And they, they go ahead and shine the light and they talk about it actually in a very transparent spectrum. So if Daniel messed up, then we're going to actually call out that Daniel did this thing, but not to, not to beat him down, but to shine that light. And so we can make sure that we don't um, have that happen again. Um, sometimes standups are that transparent. Sometimes it's just information sharing. What I would submit that is not a, when I call a check-in and those are, that's the verbiage that we're using in performance culture, check-ins are one-to-one -one private uh, meetings that are, are happening from employee and manager relate, related. So that's really the only difference, whether you put a pulse check word on it, some other semantics choice, those are really the differences there. You, uh, in your article, you cite a Gallup poll, and, and in this Gallup poll, it found that voluntary turnover, people leaving their current jobs, it's estimated that it costs U.S. businesses 
a trillion dollars a year. When I read that, I had to look over it a couple of times to make sure there wasn't a, a typo or something like that. But that number is just staggering to me. And I'm just wondering, can an individual manager turn that around? Or how much of it is dependent upon the manager and how much is dependent upon the organization itself? Here, one thing I'll note when you said it's a staggering number, I'll tell you that the employees on the front lines would not be surprised by that number. I'm, I'm not kidding. Just go and canvas employees across not just the healthcare, but all types of sectors on the ones all, all the way towards the bottom of the pyramid who are on the front lines interacting with the end user, whether that's the customer, the patient, what have you. And, and the reason why that is, is because we're losing that alignment. We're losing those good leadership skills from top down. Now, how, why are we losing that? And that's where we do say that that manager-employee relationship is so critical because if we're not investing and if we're at the top leadership level, if we're not good leaders, you can't expect to raise up good leaders below you. And if you don't lead the way and you don't hold your leaders below you accountable to being good leaders, you're not going to get that uh, engagement all the way down. You're not going to identify and work on things like creating not only engaged but inspired employees. Inspired employees don't leave you. They, they don't turn over, <laughs> you know. So people leave when they do not feel valued, when they do not feel like their personal vision is going to be met, and they don't have people that are in the game with them. They don't feel like they're part of a great team, right? So, you know, we all hear that a lot of times employees will leave managers, not necessarily comp companies. So can the manager impact this? Absolutely. They probably have the most, uh, the closest and the biggest chance for impacting turnover. With that said, I always talk about organizational design. So one of the things that I struggle with all the time on the call, and, and it just, and I when I mean by struggle, I struggle with, um, and this is called with uh, some, you know, companies that are looking at evaluating performance culture, is when they tell me that their managers, and I'm going to put that in quotes, air quotes, you can't see it, but <laughs> the managers have a span of control of anywhere from 15, 20, 30. One, just the other day, I had someone that had 60 direct reports. That is absolutely asinine to expect that manager to, and I would say that's not a manager, that's an administrator at best. So if we're talking about a turnover problem and we've got an organizational design problem that is going to prevent that manager from being effective at engaging employees and, and decreasing turnover, that's, that's like giving um, the wrong tool to the craftsman to go do his job, right? So we do have to, how much does the organization impact? A lot as well. So really the organization has to have the right, you know, design, the right processes. They've, the employees have to have the tools and resources to do their job. But yes, that manager-employee relationship will probably have the biggest impact. Employees will actually stay longer with the company if they feel like they've got a manager-mentor that cares about them and is willing to go to bat for them. They'll stay longer working in bad, you know, not bad, but like not great situations and because of that trusted relationship with the manager. So that probably has the biggest impact on them. Right. You mentioned the situation where there was a manager with 60 direct hires. I know it can depend uh, and it can shift depending on what the role is, but is there a sweet spot where there can actually be a relationship and communication can be very strong between uh, the manager and employees, a sweet spot of how many people should be reporting to someone? Yeah, I, I would submit there is. And, and I'll talk about that. Of course, everything, you know, with that economics background, you know, our favorite um, phrase is it, it, it depends. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and it does depend on a lot, right? It depends on the actual work being performed and the timeliness of those projects, you know, and, and so I'm going to put that to the side. So all else being equal, that's another phrase that we love in economics, but all else being equal, um, generally about six to no more than seven direct reports for one manager. And I know, by the way, everybody that just heard that number that has a, they, they immediately go, how is that possible? This lady's out of her mind. Stay with me here. Let me kind of explain. Okay. Six to seven. Think about a pitcher of water, right? And now remember those little Dixie cups, I guess they still make all of those. But anyway, so if I have, if I have a full pitcher of water and I, that's myself that represents me and what I can pour into others. If I am pouring into 60 or let's even cut it down to 30, right, 30 Dixie cups, and I'm trying to pour an equal amount into these 30 Dixie cups, how much are each of those Dixie cups actually going to get? Not a lot, 
right? And, but if instead I have about say six or seven of these Dixie cups and I got that same amount of that pitcher of water because we have a finite amount of resources in the day and a finite amount of energy as myself as a leader. If I now instead pour into those six or seven, how much more are they going to get? Now think about this. If those six or seven have six or seven people below them, and we, can, we don't have to give them a manager title and salary and all that. That's ridiculous. How about give them a team lead? Hey, I see something in you, and I'd like to pour into you so that you can pour into others. Do for some what you wish you could do for all, right? So if those six or seven are pouring into six or seven below them, now what's really neat is that wa those water, that water instead of being completely bone dry, which is what people get completely burned out. We talked about that in the MGMA research report, right? The burnout problem. Now I'm actually, something really interesting is going to happen. My water is going to be replenished. I'm going to be replenished because I'm going to start to see the fruits of my labor because I'm going to, they're going to be able to be effective so much faster and they're going to be now effective down the line. And that's how we can scale this leadership concept further down, down the org structure. All right. Well, Melissa, thanks so much for sharing those insights today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for this opportunity to serve. Well, that concludes part two of our staff management series. Thanks to our guest, Owen Dahl, Adrian Lloyd, Rick Waymeyer, and Melissa Philippi. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. We'd love to hear from our listeners about the show, so email us at podcast at mgma.com. MGMA Insights is presented by Craig Weberg, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening.